But to get started, I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 1 since that's what we're attempting to do is, is see the, the fullness of these two chapters together. And, and of course, when we, when we come to a book of, of Scripture that's actually a letter, we, we need to be mindful of the fact that, okay, this was meant to be taken in as a whole. The, the whole letter was meant to be read as one. You know, when, when the churches got these letters, Peter didn't say, and that's chapter 1. And this is chapter 2. That came way later, way, way later. This is as if, you know, when you get a letter in the mail, that doesn't really happen much these days, does it? But if you were to get a letter in the mail, the person who wrote that letter to you is not going to put chapter breaks in that letter for you, right? They wrote you a letter, they expect you to read that letter in its entirety. So I'm going to start with the last few verses of chapter 1 since that's what we covered last week. And then we'll continue this study through the first 12 verses of chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 22. I'll read through the rest of the chapter. We'll have a word of prayer and then we'll dive in to the study this morning. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren... Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning once again. I pray we are truly humbled at the opportunity not only to gather as saints, but to gather around your holy word. To study and to grow by the teaching and preaching of your word. And God, I pray that you would deal mercifully with me as I attempt to walk through and teach these verses. And I pray that you would deal graciously with all of us that we would grow and mature in the faith. I pray that we would come to a, a greater knowledge and understanding of your word and who we are as your children and who we are to be, the daily lives we are supposed to carry out, our purpose for being here. God, I pray that you would purify us and sanctify us through your word. God, I pray that as your word goes out, not only would it edify and equip the saints, God, but for those that are still outside of the family of God, they're still dead in their sins. God, I pray that through your word, through the power of the gospel, God, that you would raise them up to life today, that today would be their day of salvation. And God, we pray that you would receive the glory and the honor in all things. We pray that you would be well pleased with our time of fellowship and service today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, one of the last things we talked about last week. 
was that as believers, we are not obedient to try to gain acceptance from God. We are obedient as a result of already having been accepted by God. That's that's huge. I made that point last week. That definitely ties in with what we're uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning because we're going to be looking at laying aside certain things and walking in purity and living a life of godliness. But again, I I don't want anybody to have the mindset to say, okay, if I if I want to be a good little Christian or if I want to be a great Christian, then I need to focus on doing all of these things. I need to lay this aside and I need to do that. And if I lay this aside and do that, then God will be happy with me. No. Listen. Christian obedience is important, but the reason, the why, we have to understand why Christian obedience is important. Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. Okay? Now, is God displeased by disobedience? Yes. Okay? However, we know that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But what I'm driving at, what I'm pointing to right now, I want us to understand the why as to why we are obedient. We are not obedient so that God stays happy with us, stays pleased with us, and that, you know, maybe perhaps He'll let us into heaven when we die. We are obedient to God through the understanding that through Jesus Christ, through His shed blood, we have been cleansed of our sin. We have already been accepted by the Father in Christ. We are accepted. The, the, the happiness and the joy that He sees when He views Christ's obedience, even to the death of the cross, is the same acceptance and joy that He looks at us with. Okay? So there's a why we are supposed to be obedient. So please don't take any of what we're talking about this morning as a checklist. Okay, well, if I do this and I don't do that, I'm good. No. Rather, start with the gospel. Start with your salvation. Are you in the beloved? Are you a part of the family of God? Those closing verses there of 1 Peter chapter 1. Are you confident that they apply to you? Have you been born again of imperishable seed? Have you been raised up to new life? And if you answer that question, yes, I know that I'm saved. I know that I have been born again. Then consider that if that is true, if God in His mercy and grace has spared you of His wrath and has raised you up to new life, then consider what manner of life ought you to be living. And I hope we would all agree that it, would, it should be a life of gratitude, a life of thanks, and a life of obedience to the one that has saved us and granted us life. So, that's a little bit of a recap of last week leading up to this. Therefore, now, I know I've shared, with the, I've shared this with you already. Uh, this is a really, it's a deep, deep thought. And I hope it sticks with you. Anytime there's a therefore in Scripture, you've got to figure out what the therefore is there for. Right? Okay, so, therefore, as a result, because you have been saved, not, not in order to get saved, but because you have been saved, because you have been born again, therefore, laying aside all malice, Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, 
and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So you say, I have been born again. I'm confident in the salvation that has been granted to me by the grace of God. Okay. No longer live in malice or deceit or envy or evil speaking or hypocrisy. If you claim to be born again, live as one who has been born again. You say, okay, well, I've been born again. That would make me a baby. If we go back to the start, I don't know. I don't know all of your testimony. So I don't know when you say was the day that God called you to himself and raised you up to new life. I don't know how long you would say you have been a Christian. But let's go back to that. In sense, let's take it back to the root of the issue and say, okay, born again. Well, when somebody is born, they don't typically come out as full grown adults, right? We can all agree there. Okay, some of y'all are awake. Some of y'all... So, I just said that. Some of y'all were just like... So, some of y'all are awake. Okay. Rain it back in. Alright. We know for a fact. When was the last time you ever saw anybody born as a full-grown adult? Forget the curious case of Benjamin Button. Okay? Never. So, if we are born... Again, we are spiritual babies, spiritual infants. What causes the growth of the believer? What causes the growth of the born again individual? Milk. But our milk comes from the very word of God. Now catch this. This is this is good stuff. Not just because I'm saying it, but because it's biblical. That makes it good stuff. We were told in chapter 1 that it was the word of the gospel that caused our new birth. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So the power of salvation is literally in the word. So the gospel goes out and as the gospel goes out, God is raising up men and women to new life. And then you say, well, okay, they've been saved now. So now what do they need? More of the word. More of the word. You say, okay, the word. That's really important. Of course, we would say that. What else does a Christian need to really focus on and really hone in on so that they can grow? The word. Now, I know I've preached here enough that, that some of y'all are thinking, Caleb makes that point a lot. This is not the first time that we have heard Caleb say, you need to be in the Word. You need to be in the Word. Well, there's a reason that Caleb repeats that a lot. The Bible repeats that a lot. Be in the Word. What did Jesus say when He was tempted in the wilderness? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If Jesus puts a high premium on the word, we ought to put a high premium on the word. Amen? Amen. Okay, so there's a reason that you will hear me as many times as you hear me preach from now until the end of our lives. You will probably hear me make the point at least a thousand more times. We must be in the word. A Christian, a professing Christian that is not in the word 
is not growing. There is no chance whatsoever that a Christian, a professing Christian that is not in the word, there is no chance that they are growing and maturing in the faith. It's not going to happen. Because God has ordained that the means by which we grow, the means by which we are fed, the means by which we are corrected when we need correcting, the means by which we are encouraged and exhorted in the faith comes from the Word. So, you've been born again? Start to grow. Well, how do I start to grow? Desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If we claim to be born again, then we ought to have a sincere and genuine desire for the sincere milk of the Word. After all, if we claim that God has saved us and He has granted us life and we owe our life to Him, would it not follow that it would be of utmost importance to know what our Savior has spoken? To know what He has told us? Surely we would all agree that it would be a very foolish thing to say, God has saved me by His grace and mercy. I'm not interested in anything else He had to say. I think that we can all agree that that would be quite the foolish statement and quite the foolish position to live out within our lives. So, lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all speaking. So, if you've been born again, lay aside your old manner of living. You're not that person anymore. Have a desire for the Word. You say, well, that's new. Yes, your life is new. Therefore, live and walk in newness of life. Desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Coming to Him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a lot packed into just those couple of verses there. We have come to Christ who is the living stone. <clears throat> he was rejected by men. But chosen by God and precious, we read in, in chapter 1, verse 19, that we are redeemed or cleansed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then Peter says, you also, so believers, those who have been born again, you also are like living stones. So what is the purpose? Why would we be referred to as living stones? What is our purpose? We've been born again. You know, why doesn't God just save us and then bring us up to heaven? Why does He leave us here? What's the purpose? What is our, what is our meaning? Why do we exist as Christians? What's the purpose? Well, we're being built up into a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood. What does that, what does that mean? I'm not a priest. What did priests do in the Old Testament? They, <clears throat> they offered sacrifices. They interceded on behalf of the people. That I don't offer sacrifices. I couldn't even. I, not even once in my life have I ever killed an animal, 
put it on the altar, burned part of it, offered it to God as, as a sweet-smelling aroma. I've never done any of that. What in the world does that mean that I'm part of a priesthood? What does this priesthood do? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our life, our life, our manner of living, our manner of conversation, our manner of thought, our manner of living, all of it. Is meant to be carried out with the understanding that I have become a partaker of the grace of God. I didn't earn it. I could never earn it. I wasn't worthy of it. I didn't deserve it. Yet God in His grace and in His mercy has made me a partaker. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And He also tells me that I'm, I'm part of a, a, a priesthood. That His people are considered a, a kingdom, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. And so that means I have a responsibility. What is my responsibility? To offer up sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now that's pretty weighty, isn't it? That would mean that the Christian life is more than just trying to have a positive attitude. Trying to always find the silver lining in things. Trying to always be nice to people. Going to church, putting some money in the offering plate. Every aspect of life. Is it a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing offering to God? We are being built up a spiritual house. That's an interesting thought. Turn to Ephesians 2. I don't have it marked in my Bible right now. Because I wasn't planning on doing this. But this is this will be real, real quick. It will be quick and painless, I promise. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. Now therefore you, so believers. In Ephesians, Paul is making the argument that the Gentiles are no longer strangers. They're no longer far off from God. But that God through Jesus Christ has brought them near. And that God through Jesus Christ has made the Jew and the Gentile one person. He has made them one. And so in verse 19 he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is the exact argument. Or, or the exact point that Peter is making in First Peter. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God does not dwell in temples made by hands, right? So then where does the Spirit of God dwell? In those that have been born again of imperishable seed. He dwells within us. And we are being built up into a temple, a dwelling place of God. That is substantial. That should cause us, that should cause us each and every day to 
at least take a moment to say, I have been saved by God. I have been raised up to new life. He has made me a part of a royal priesthood to offer up pleasing offerings, sacrifices to Him. Am I doing that? Is this true in my life? We should take that into consideration each and every day. But also, don't just consider the weight and the gravity of that, which should cause us to stop and and consider that. But let's just for a moment consider the gratefulness and the joy that we should have when we consider that. What did you and I do that was worthy of being brought to God and being brought into His priesthood? What did we do that, that merited salvation? Nothing. Nothing. So why has He done this thing? Because it was good in His sight. He saves because it's the good pleasure of His will. He saves because He works all things according to His own counsel, according to His own purpose. It is mercy and it is grace that has saved us. And when we are humbled by the mercy and the grace of God which is poured out upon us, we should be encouraged and strengthened to say, my life is not my own. Why am I here? To give offerings that are pleasing to Him. I'm not here to satisfy myself. I'm not here to pursue my own desires. I'm here to pursue the things of God and the things that give glory to God. I am here for His glory. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. I could stop there and just preach a whole sermon on this, but do you consider Christ to be precious? Do you consider Him to be your very life? Not just the reason that you actually have breath in your lungs, but the reason that you have life at all. Physical, let alone spiritual, eternal life. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. When we, if we were to just boil it down. And make it as simple as we could possibly make it. When it comes to the truth, and when I say the truth, I don't just mean like what we consider to be the truth. I mean Christ, the gospel, the word of God, the truth. When it comes to the truth, there are one of two responses. And that's it. Belief and obedience or rebellion and disobedience. That's what it comes down to. Now, we know that we live in a world where people come up with many, many, many reasons as to why they don't believe. Or many reasons why they think that 
you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to take all that stuff very seriously. You know, I, I say that I'm a Christian. I think I have a personal relationship with him. I don't have to go to church. You know, I can I can worship God in a tree stand or I can worship God wherever else. I don't have to be a part of a body of believers or whatever. We've got all kinds of excuses. But when when we simmer it down, it really comes down to this. We either believe the truth and we are obedient to it. Or we rebel against the truth and we're disobedient to it. And here, in Peter, we have this scene pretty clearly. For those of you who believe, Christ is precious. You love Him. There is belief. There is, He is my life. Literally, my life is hid with Him. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected... So we either accept or reject, we believe or not believe, we submit or we rebel. That's what it boils down to. So, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed, but you. So, disobedience, they stumble, they've rejected, but you, believers, those that have been born again, you are a Chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Consider that. God did not have to save anybody. We forget that sometimes, right? We feel like, oh, well, if God is God, he has to save people. No, he doesn't. He does not. There is nothing that compels God to save other than God. With whom does He take counsel? Who does God ask? Is this a good idea? Nobody. He doesn't have to. He's God. God doesn't look at us and say, Do you approve of my methods? Do you approve of who I am? No, He simply is God. When Adam and Eve... Rebelled against his authority in the garden and and they ate the the fruit. God could have struck them down right then and there and he would have been within his rights to do so. Why? Because he's God. He is their creator and they rebelled against his authority. But what did he do instead? There was a sacrifice that was made because something had to die in order to give them a covering. And that is the mercy and the grace of God. Because what did Adam and Eve deserve that day? The wrath of God. What did they get instead? The mercy and the grace of God. God didn't have to save anyone. God did not have to call Abram and say, Get up and go to a land that I'm showing you because I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. He didn't have to do that. So now we're moving on to the next thing. Not only did God not have to save even one person, He certainly did not have to set out and make this beautiful plan of redemption in which He saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation and He makes them to be one in Christ. He did not have to do it. Why did He do it? Because He chose to. 
Because he's God. Because he is a loving and a merciful, patient, long-suffering God. And so when we as believers sit back and we think, well, if we claim to be Christian, what we're actually saying is that God has brought us to himself and we're, we're a people for his own possession. We are a chosen people. We are a holy priesthood. Folks, that's, that's a high claim. When we walk out into the world around us and we claim to be a Christian, that's got to mean more to us than I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? It means I go to church, I pay my tithes, I try to do what's right, and I just, you know, I'm trying to live a good life. Guys, it's got to be more than that. Why? Not because I say so, but because Scripture says so. When we tell other people that we are Christian, here's what we're actually telling them. The precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed to purchase my redemption. That Christ's death had to happen. And that I've been saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God saw fit to crush His own Son to purchase my redemption. And I believe that and I have faith in that. That's a weighty claim. That's a weighty claim. When we say that we're Christian, we're telling people that, that God has seen fit to save us, to call us to Himself, and that He has made us a part of His holy nation. His people. There's some, there's some gravity to that statement, right? There's some depth to that statement. That's a whole lot more than just, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to such and such church up the road. You know, my family's always going there. I grew up there, you know. Uh, my family's always going to that church. We've been going there for good gracious. I could probably, we, uh, my family has probably had a name in that church for a for hundred years or more. You know, I grew up in a church in, in Glenville that I believe it's over 150 or 160 years old now. So I grew up in a church that, you know, it had some heritage, right? It had some clout when it came to, to history and being a historical monument of the community. I get it. But being a Christian is more than where you go to church, where you pay your tithes, what you claim to be. Listen, this is it. If we claim that we're a Christian, I hope that each and every one of us would take some time to consider and say... All right. If I really have been born again, then that means that God has graciously forgiven my sins, raised me up to new life, and has made me a part of His people. And He did not do that because I deserved it. He did not do that because... I'm worthy of it. As sinners, we are, we are worthy of one thing. The wrath of God. And so when we contemplate, He saved me, He made me a part of His people, and it was all because of His mercy. 
and His grace. He did not have to do it. Then each and every day we should be humbled anew or afresh and realize I only exist because of Him. It, it, it's all for Him. It is all for Him. And then we come back to this question of why. Why has He made us a royal priesthood? Why are we a chosen generation? Why has He made us a part of a holy nation? Why has He made us His own special people? Here's your answer. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why we're still here. Did Jesus not tell His disciples in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a, on a hill cannot be hid. <clears throat> Why are we still here? As we talked about last week, as the gospel goes out, that is what brings men and women to salvation. So, remember last week I said, how dare we? How dare we claim to be born again? We claim to know the mercy and the grace of God. We claim to know the love of God. How dare we not go out and share it, right? We talked about that last week. So, first and foremost, we go out and we share the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, the hope of the gospel. We proclaim the mercy and the excellencies of Him who saved us. And that, that, that's doubled down on right here. You're, you're His own special people that. Like, here's the reason. You're His own special people so that you will proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Are, are our lives marked by that characteristic? Do we have lives that are characterized by the fact that we are doing our best day in and day out to proclaim the praises or the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His light? Do we give our lives for that effort? Do we offer up our lives to that end? It's Thanksgiving week. So let me, let me work this in here a little bit. Because I know, I know some people, and I'm saying this to be funny, I'm saying this to be lighthearted so you can smile and you can chuckle a little bit. Some people will get straight up upset if it's a holiday week and the preacher doesn't even mention it at all. They'll be like, well, that was a great sermon, but I can't, I can't believe you didn't even mention Thanksgiving. So let me, let me work this in here a little bit. Alright? Because when it does come to a, especially something like Thanksgiving, there should be no greater people group that is thankful on the face of this earth than those who claim to have been born again. And here what we're reading is our whole existence really ought to be marked by the fact that we're doing what? Proclaiming the praise of Him who has saved us. You say, well, Caleb, it says that He took us out of darkness into light. That's salvation. That's what that means. We were in death we were in darkness. He has transferred us into His light. And there again, I say this once more because it can't be repeated too much. We didn't deserve that. There's nothing that He did that made Him say, Okay, well, that one, that one there, they're trying extra hard. So since they're trying so hard, I'll choose them. Nope. Well, well that one over there, she's a little bit smarter than the rest of them. You know, she, she's a little bit more talented. I think I, think I want strong, talented... No. 
grace. We are saved by grace through faith. And that is not of ourselves. It is a gift. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So back to this Thanksgiving idea. We had, we had our first round of family Thanksgiving yesterday. <clears throat> and um, I was just kind of sitting back taking it all in. And what are typically, and in fact, y'all talk a little bit this morning. What are some things typically that you really, that warms your heart or that lifts your spirit during, during holidays? What are some of the first things that come to your mind? Family. Okay. Oh, the family's gathered together. That warms my heart. All right, we're all Baptists here. So don't pretend that you're not thinking about how good the food is around the holidays. Right? It's okay to be thankful for food. Don't be a glutton. But it's okay to be thankful for food. Right? And it's definitely okay to be thankful for food that actually tastes good. When you've got some good cooks in the family, it's much easier to be thankful for food than when you've got people who don't know how to season stuff. But... I'll let Alan slide. We got good cooks in our family. My parents own a restaurant, so they better be good, right? Family and food. Let's just stick. We'll stick with just those two. I'll add a third one, sorry. Time. Okay, because even, even if not all the family shows up, when you're actually able to sit down with your family and like fellowship, that's something we enjoy. So time. Time well spent, right? Consider this. And, I, and I, I believe with all of my heart that these are things that we have got to be mindful of. We, we have got to be careful that we don't start worshiping the creation more than the creator, right? We all love family. We love gathering with family. Even, even at times the family member that like rubs you the wrong way. When the family gets together at the holidays, there's just something that's like, okay, well, you know, I don't, I don't even feel as mad at that family member as I felt last year. So, you know, yeah, and, and maybe you're even able to work it out with that family member over, over the holidays or whatever else. But we are thankful for family. Where does the concept of family even come from? If God had not ordained that male and female will come together and cleave as one and that they will reproduce, we wouldn't even know what family is. So we better not st- and say, oh, I just love family so much. What we ought to be saying is, thank you, God, that you came up with the idea of family. And that we get to enjoy your creation. And that you have seen fit to, to place me in this family. Have you ever considered that? You could have been born anywhere, any place, to any other family. But God saw fit. Who was it that formed you in your mother's womb? It was God. So God saw fit to have you be born into the specific family that you were born into. So we don't need to, oh, well, well, it's family. You know, I, I just, okay, that's good. Enjoy the family. But enjoy family under the understanding that it is God who created even the concept of family. Food. Again, it is very much okay to be thankful for food. Can you imagine if we lived in a world where food didn't have taste? Who ordained that there would be spices and that there would be ways to to cook food, to prepare food that actually had strong flavor and good taste and that we could experience that. 
God did. God God could have created a world where everything tasted the same. God could have created a world where there were no such things as spices. But He didn't. So we can't, oh, this food is good. We should, we should literally take time each and every, and I know that sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy and we're not in the habit of doing it. But every single time we eat, you know, we say, we say, we say the blessing, right? God, thank you for this food. You know, just help us have a, you know, bless this food in our bodies and our bodies your service. That's, that's something that I always say. But when was the last time that you stopped and you literally said, thank you, thank you, God. That we actually are able to experience good food. That we actually have, we're able to to taste and to have different taste and to enjoy food. <clears throat> and so even, even the eating of food should lift our hearts and our minds to Him in praise that not only has He sustained us with food, but He has allowed us to, to taste and experience different taste and enjoy food. Right? Time, fellowship. Who is sovereign over how much time we have on this earth? Who is sovereign over the amount of times that we get to gather with our families? That we get to to fellowship together and in the case of believing families, hopefully worship together. You you hear stuff all the time that every, every moment is a gift. We hear that. Do we believe it? Does it drive us to our knees to say, to say, thank you, God, for another moment, for another breath? And may I not waste these moments not praising you for calling me out of darkness into life. May I not waste this time and waste these moments that you've given me by living them unto myself rather than living them as an offering that is pleasing in your sight. Are we thankful because here's the temptation. Thanksgiving rolls around. Christmas comes around. And, and it just becomes a routine. We're Christians, so we come to church for a special service. We come to church for a special Christmas service. You know, a lot of churches, they'll have a play. And, or there'll be a cantata. And there'll be a special time. And we'll think, okay, well, that's good. We're Christians. We're taking time to, okay, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. But listen, if it's not all about Jesus in your own heart and in your mind then you can go through all the motions that you want, but it ain't all about Jesus to you. Are we thankful? And you say, okay, well, give me a a whole list of things to be thankful for. You've been called out of darkness into light. You don't need another reason. You don't need another reason. That's it. If we had nothing else, if we had nothing else except the promise that we had been saved, then we ought to be the most grateful, thankful people on the planet. And we don't need another reason to be grateful or thankful. If our eternal soul is secured and anchored in Christ and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, we don't need more reasons to be thankful. But yet God in His grace and in His mercy has given us a myriad of things to be thankful for. Like family, food, fellowship. All these things fall under that. But here's the thing. If you had all those other things, family, food, fellowship, good times, money in the bank, a big house, 
lot, all of the cars that you would ever want, if you had all of those things, but didn't have Christ, it doesn't amount to anything. But yet we live in a world today where so many more people, even professing Christians, they get really excited and really grateful and thankful for all the stuff. But then you start talking about the gospel, you start talking about Jesus Christ, and it's kind of like, yeah, I get that, I understand. I know. There's no joy. There's no thankfulness. There's no gratitude. Kind of like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I get it. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff. I would rather focus on this other stuff. I, I got a busy life. I got a lot of stuff to tend to. We have been called out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Anyone who has truly obtained the mercy and the grace of God, this world, no matter how severely it persecutes us, no matter how severely it attacks us, no matter, no matter how much our friends or even our own family members tell us that we need to calm down or whatever else, anybody who has truly received the mercy and the grace of God, the world ought not be able to get us to shut up and not talk about it. The apostles gave their lives. Many in the early church gave their lives. Why? Because they would not stop speaking of the mercy and the grace of God, which they had obtained. And they were zealous for others to obtain that same grace and mercy of God. And the world killed them for it. You say, oh, I would have stopped before they killed me. Why? Because we value this life. More than we value eternal life. Now I promise you we wouldn't go through the whole chapter and we're not. But I do want you to jump to. Verse. 23. This is Peter talking about Jesus. Our great example. Jesus was mistreated by the world. Jesus was persecuted by the world. Rejected by the world. It says. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's what we need to focus on. When times get hard, when people are coming after, if we ever do face persecution, if we ever do really start to suffer simply because we're Christians, we don't entrust ourselves to the world or to the people of the world. Our soul has been entrusted to him who judges rightly, to him who judges righteously, right? So if the judge of all the world looks at us and says, mine, they're good. They will be with me for eternity. Why do we fear anything else? Why do we fear what others think of us? Why do we fear the persecution of the world? We ought not. What did Jesus do when he was reviled, when he was persecuted? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That's it. If you claim to have been born again, you are claiming that Jesus was persecuted, beaten, Hung on a cross so that you could be healed of sins. So that you could be saved from the wrath of God. 
And that is what should put everything else in our lives in perspective. There is nothing more preeminent or nothing more pressing in the life of the Christian than understanding who we are in Christ and what our responsibility is as we live out our daily lives on this earth. So, for those who profess to be believers, I pray that God would use this passage to convict, to encourage, to to, to at least cause us to meditate and ponder on some things. And for us to really ask ourselves, am I living my life as an offering that is pleasing to God? Am I living my life to proclaim the excellencies and the praise of Him who has called me out of darkness into the light? And for those that are here that may not, either may not have confidence that they're born again, perhaps you're struggling, or you may know outright in your heart, you know, I have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But I can tell you this with the utmost confidence. Come to Him today and you will find Him to be a good and perfect Savior. That never changes. For He is an un- God is an unchanging God. Christ's work upon the cross is finished. Meaning that whoever believes will be saved. Would never perish. And I'm praying that today would be the day of your salvation. But back to the professing Christians for just a moment. I hope and I pray. That God would bring us under the weight and the conviction of what it really means to be a Christian. Not the way that we go about it a lot in the world today, but what biblically it really means to be a child of God. Raised up to new life. A recipient of His grace. Called, precious, chosen. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. That we would... That God would allow us through His Spirit to comprehend that and to be changed and transformed. To have a renewed mind as a result of contemplating and meditating on, oh, how great a salvation has been granted to us. Let's pray.